Now turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 15, page 965 in the Church Bibles. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 15. I always think that chapter 4, verse 1 is one of the best verses in 2 Corinthians. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Amen. And may God himself, by his Spirit, be our teacher tonight. Just a prayer together, please. Father, we still our hearts in your presence, having sung some wonderful songs and hymns of praise, and we come now to your word, 
and uh, we come humbly to pray for your help. We ask that as we wrestle with what it says to us living our lives in the 21st century, um, we just pray that you'll come and minister to us and make this passage of Scripture live to us. We ask this humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a very promising young boy. He attended London Grammar School and trained as a doctor at uh, St. Bartholomew's Hospital in London, um, earning his MD from London University. He became a member of the Royal College of Physicians, and he began work as an assistant to the royal physician, Lord Horder. But he turned his back on all of that, a promising medical career, and the opportunity of attending to the needs of royalty to become a minister of a small Welsh Calvinistic chapel. And he buried himself in the work of that little church from 1927 to 1939. I think some people might be tempted to think that was a bit of a waste. What would compel a man to leave such a promising career, attending to the needs of royalty, to become a minister of such a tiny congregation in the middle of Wales? Paul, I'm sure, asked himself the same question on many occasions. He had a promising academic career ahead of him as an Old Testament lecturer in the university halls of Jerusalem. If he had continued, he probably would have succeeded Gamaliel and have been given his chair. But what did he do? He threw all of that away and turned his back on it to become a Christian missionary. Wasn't that a bit of a waste? And look at the life he lived as a Christian missionary. He continually faced hardships, persecution, beatings, imprisonment, poverty, sickness, and on and on the list goes. One could understand him putting up with some of that at least if the churches that he had founded had been wonderfully grateful and extremely supportive of him and his ministry. But most of them were beset with problems. In Thessalonica or Thessalonica, there was a contingent who had basically downed tools and were just waiting for the Lord Jesus to come back again. In Galatia, legalism had set in and strangled the life out of the church. In Asia, where Paul is, uh, has been ministering in Ephesus, it seems that everyone has turned against him in Asia. And what about Corinth? What kind of a mess is this church not in? When he made his flying visit, visit, it's interesting that he had no option, at least he had little option, but to retreat back to Ephesus. He went to fix out some of the problems in the church No one in the church supported him when certain individuals rose up against him, and he had no option but to retreat back to Ephesus. And when he sent his third letter, known as the severe letter, by the hand of Titus, 
he agreed with Titus before he left for Corinth. I'm going to leave Ephesus and I'll meet you in Troas at the end of the summer before they take the winter break from sailing on the Mediterranean. And sure enough, he went to Troas, but Titus didn't show up. And he had to spend a little bit of time in Troas waiting to see if Titus was going to come on the last boat, as it were. When he was in Troas, opportunities for ministry opened up for him. But he was so distracted and so disturbed and so anxious about the state of the church in Corinth that he decided he couldn't pursue those gospel opportunities, and he left and traveled north into Macedonia, where eventually he did hook up with Titus. He had nothing but grief from most of the churches that he had planted. So why did he not stay lecturing in Jerusalem? He could have been both rich and famous by now. He would have been the guest invited to every banquet to give an after-dinner speech. Instead of scurrying around the first century world from one difficulty straight into another. I'm sure he asked himself that question. I'm sure he asked himself the question, why do I keep going with this work? Why don't I just throw in the towel I mean, I never signed up for this. I had no expectation that it would ever be this difficult. These are some of the questions I think that Paul is answering in this particular section of 2 Corinthians. He is a preacher because preaching is God's appointed method of bringing the light of Christ to men and women, and there is no higher calling than giving voice to the message of the gospel. And Paul goes to great lengths and to great pains to tell us that he received this ministry by the mercy of God. It's a mercy, it was a miracle that God should have entrusted him with this particular role that he fills and with this particular message that he gives voice to. Paul is amazed that God has called him to be a missionary. I imagine that that must relate to his former life as a violent persecutor of the church. He had presided over the death of Christians like Stephen. He had hunted the church from city to city, pursuing it like a wild animal. It was a miracle of mercy and grace that one day at 12 o'clock he had been stopped in his tracks And he heard a voice from heaven, and his life had been completely transformed. Often those who are extremely antagonistic before they become Christians become some of the greatest preachers in a pulpit ever. And I think that's because more than anyone else, they understand the extent of God's mercy towards them. They understand how indebted they are to God. They were blasphemers. They were arrogant. They were antagonistic. They were persecutors. Yet God turned them around and they realized what a debt they owe the Lord. And that was certainly true of the, of the apostle Paul. It's a mercy that has us here. It's a mercy it has me here. Why should I occupy the position that I do, helping students to prepare them for gospel work? There are a million people more deserving of this privilege than I ever am. But somehow, by the mercy of God, 
we have been entrusted with this ministry, this ministry of introducing people to Jesus and Jesus to people, this ministry of revealing by the life that we live and the words that we speak the wonders of the gospel. Somehow, in God's mercy, we have been entrusted with this great ministry, and we keep going because we carry around in our hearts the greatest news that anyone has ever heard. This is the greatest news that anyone has ever heard because a person's greatest need is not a brilliant education. It's not a great health care package. A person's greatest need is forgiveness and reconciliation to God. And somehow, by God's mercy, we've been entrusted with that message of reconciliation. So we do not lose heart, says Paul, in giving voice to this great message that God has entrusted to us. And he gives us a list of things that he refuses to be deterred by a list of things that he refuses to be discouraged by as he continues in this ministry and work that he's involved in. The first thing that he refuses to be deterred by is counterfeit preachers. He says, I have renounced secret and shameful ways. We don't use deception, nor do we distort the Word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul does not engage in shameful methods and strategies as he endeavors to minister and reach out to others. He doesn't use deception or twist the Word of God to make it say what he wants it to say or to make it a little bit more culturally palatable. In chapter 2, verse 17, he says this, he says, unlike so many, we do not peddle the Word of God for profit. We're not peddlers of the Word for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. The word peddle uh, is used in the context of people buying things exceptionally cheap and then selling them at an exorbitant price. It could be used in the context of people who are selling wine, which is watered down, and people think that they are buying a vintage from the Golan Heights, and really they're buying really just rubbish, bogus wine that's just watered down 50%. And it may be that there were preachers in Corinth who were using their Christian positions to gain favor and finance and a following. Some of them have been keeping their true identity hidden in order to woo the Christian public, members of the church. They were passing themselves off as Christian preachers, but behind the scenes, they were still absolutely committed to the old covenant, hence chapter 3. They were more focused on Moses than they ever were on Jesus. I think not only is there an Old Testament flavor to these critics of the Apostle Paul, there may have been a bit of a Greek flavor to it, a kind of a secret sort of approach, esoteric kind of approach. It's kind of, listen to me, and I will give you the secret knowledge that you need to enjoy the greatest spiritual trip that you have ever had. 
It's listen to me and I will bamboozle you with words and concepts and you'll think that such mysteries must contain the truth and you'll believe it. But there was nothing about the cross. There was nothing about Jesus. There was nothing about God's final word in His Son. There was nothing about judgment. There was nothing about the afterlife. People weren't quite sure if it was Christian or if it wasn't Christian, but it was deceptive and it was ensnaring people and drawing in the vulnerable members of the church. And Paul says to his readers, I have renounced that kind of stuff. I have renounced such shameful ways. Now, some of you will have recognized from my accent that I spent a chunk of time in Northern Ireland. I am Scottish, just for the record. Um, but I did spend a long time of, in, in Northern Ireland. I was a minister of a church in Lisbon for a while. And I watched a, a, a little documentary a while back on the life of Dr. Ian Paisley. And I was really interested. I'm not much of a politician. I have no interest in politics whatsoever, neither on this side nor on that side, and I should probably have more interest. But one of his sons, at, speaking at that service, said this, My dad was a plain talker. He said, when John Major was prime minister, he wrote to my father and asked him what he wanted. What are your demands? Ian wrote back to him. And when John Major wrote back to Ian, he said to him, thank you for your clear response. In all my dealings with you, I have never needed to ask anyone what you were, what you were asking for. I never needed to ask my colleagues ever what does Ian mean here? I always knew because you spoke with absolute clarity. That was Paul. He may not have embraced the politics of Ian Paisley, but he was, clear, he was a clear speaker. He renounced shameful, deceptive ways. His message was clear and unequivocal. There are three things to note about Paul's preaching. It was marked by integrity. He did not use deception. He didn't hide parts of the message that he felt people wouldn't like. He didn't pretend to say something he wasn't saying. It was marked by fidelity. He didn't distort the Word of God. He didn't fool around with the message. He just served it up as helpfully as he could. And it was marked, his preaching was marked by intelligibility. He set forth the word plainly, he says. He says he gave thought to what he was saying and how he would say it. Sometimes I think we can be a little deceptive, like the teachers in Corinth. Oh, come and follow me, and I will give you a spiritual fix. And if you come to our church and follow our little group, you'll be just fine. Now, sometimes we, in, in thinking about this, we run immediately in our minds to the health and wealth preachers. But we can be a little deceptive on occasions, even in evangelical circles. Join our group, attend our conferences, and we'll give you spiritual highs that will never wane. But how many people have come and been disappointed? Why will we not be honest with people? There are no shortcuts to holiness. The Christian life is wonderful and it leads to a glorious end. But the truth is, sometimes it is really tough. Sometimes the Christian life is really tough. Lynn and I have got a friend in Canada with a young family. He's just been diagnosed with aggressive cancer. And it's difficult to understand the purposes of God in the midst of all of that. 
So says Paul, there's no nonsense in what I preach. It does exactly what it says on the tin. And I long for preachers who will just say what they mean and mean what they say. In my current role, as I trundle around the country, from time to time I get an opportunity to roll into different churches on a Sunday morning if I'm speaking at somewhere, and I may be free on a Sunday morning, I get a chance to roll into church. And sometimes I come out of church scratching my head saying, what in the world was that about? What was that person trying to say? It made no sense. It was just like trying to bamboozle people with a, just a clatter of words. Why won't we speak clearly? Say what we mean and mean what we say. That's what the Apostle Paul says about his own ministry. And he refuses. He, he refuses to be lured in. He, he refuses to be diverted by people who employ other tactics to try and impress and engender a following. Second thing that he refuses to be put off by is a blinding enemy, verses 3 and 4. That's another, another, another struggle that people face in ministry, is a crafty enemy who blinds people. Paul says, if people don't understand what I am saying, it's not because I've been deceptive. You almost get the hint, don't you, that people have been accusing him of being a little underhanded in his preaching. But he says, if people don't understand what I'm saying, it's not because I've been deceptive. It's because the God of this world has blinded their eyes. If our gospel is failed, it's failed to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan puts a veil over the spiritual eyes of men and women and boys and girls so that they cannot understand the message of Jesus. Satan wants people to remain in spiritual darkness, so he hides the truth. He hides the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, there are spiritual cataracts over some people's eyes. They can't see Christ's holiness and goodness. They can't see His greatness and His authority over nature as the winds and waves obey Him. They can't see His authority over sickness and death as He heals the blind and those who are disabled and stands outside the grave of a man who is dead and calls him back to life. Some people their eyes are so spiritually blind that they can't see the true identity of Jesus, even though they read Mark's gospel. They can't see that Jesus is Lord, and it will take a miracle of grace for their eyes to be opened. It's interesting to notice that the core of Paul's message is not a principle or a set of propositions. It's a person that person is Jesus. They cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. He is consumed with Jesus. But Paul is not bowed because of the challenges that he faces, because he knows that the God who spoke light into existence at creation, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Genesis 1 verse 3, Paul says that the God who caused the light to shine in the darkness at creation cause the light of the gospel to shine in my heart and can cause the light of the gospel to shine in other people's hearts. So in other words, this God who causes the light to shine in the darkness, this God who caused the light to shine so bright that it outshone the midday sun, the day that I was 
transformed on the Damascus Road, says Paul. That God can penetrate the spiritual cataracts in people's eyes and the spiritual blindness so that their eyes are opened and so that they can see who Jesus really is. The Spirit of God can lift the veil and allow us to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So as we watch the grace of Jesus as he deals with the woman caught in adultery. You know what we see there? We see the grace of God. As you see the tenderness of Jesus dealing with that woman at the well, broken and wounded by multiple relationships that went sour. Watch the tenderness of Jesus. You know what you see there as you look into the face of Jesus? You see the mercy of God. You see, as we gaze into the face of Jesus as he drives the money changers out of the temple who have turned his father's house into a place of commerce, as you look into the face of Jesus, you know what you see? When the veil has been taken away and your spiritual eyes have been opened, you see the wrath of the Lamb. When you look at the face of Jesus on the cross and hear him utter those words, Father, Forgive them because they don't know what they are doing. Right there as you gaze at the face of Jesus, when the veil has been taken from your eyes, you see something of the love of God. And what Paul is saying here is, if people don't see what I'm saying, it's not because I've been deceptive. It's because the God of this world has blinded their eyes. But that doesn't put me off because I believe with all my heart, says Paul, that God can open spiritual eyes and God can cause light to shine in the darkness. You know, I heard just about a week ago of the death of a man in uh, the church that I was the minister of in Canada. And uh, what I was intrigued by was before I left Canada, I used to visit him, read the Bible with him, but he couldn't understand the gospel. He just could not see it. I did my level best to explain it to him one particular day, knowing, knowing that I was leaving, but he couldn't see it. It made no sense to him. But I heard just from a friend of mine that about a month before he died, he saw it. Somehow his spiritual eyes were opened and he embraced Christ. So doesn't that give you hope tonight as you sit in church and you think about your son or daughter that you've been praying for and the gospel makes no sense to them? The God who caused light to shine in the darkness can open their spiritual eyes. Your mom and dad, your aunt, your uncle, your next door neighbor... It makes no sense to them, but it could make sense to them if God were to open their eyes. Here's the third thing that he refuses to be put off by is a frail human body. He says in verse 7, he uses this picture of a clay pot, and he says, we have this treasure in, in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We have this treasure in pots of clay. Clay pots were fragile things. If you drop a clay pot, it will break in multiple pieces. A clay pot is something that's so easily chipped. And yet that's how Paul describes himself. And all who have come to trust in Christ were just clay jars. We're just jars made of clay. We're subject to decay, which he will talk about in the next chapter. 
I wonder if Paul was feeling his age a little bit here. Um, I'm not sure about that. But he talks so openly and so honestly about himself. There's no pretense. There's no elevation of himself. He's not saying, you know, I am really gold or silver. You should be looking at me. He just describes himself as a, as a clay pot. Paul is so unlike the peddlers of false religion that had infiltrated the, the church at Corinth. They loved themselves, but saw, Paul saw himself as nothing but a clay pot. He's, and he's not one of those Greek glazed jars with fancy painting on the outside. He's just a clay pot. That's all he is. Clay pots are expendable. When you break them, you throw, throw them away. When glass is broken, it's, it's melted down and reused. But clay pots are useless once they've been killed. And Paul saw himself as lowly and expendable. We think of clay jars. We think of the flower pots out the back of our house that are in our garden shed or buried half broken in the garden full of flowers or weeds or whatever it is. But, but that's not necessarily the picture that Paul is using here. Clay pots in the first century were used for all kinds of things. The Dead Sea Scrolls, for instance, were found in clay pots. 1946, when that little shepherd boy tossed his stone into that cave and heard something smash or break, the thing that broke was a clay, was a clay pot. And inside it was one of the greatest finds of the century, of last century. In 1946, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Clay pots were used for, to keep treasure in jewels. Precious stones were kept and transported in clay pots. And, and Paul, in talking about Christ and the gospel, says, we have a great treasure in these clay pots. We may be just clay pots, but we have this amazing treasure in these clay pots. Christ lives in us. And we have the message of the gospel embedded in our hearts. We have this amazing treasure in these clay pots, he says. The treasure is the glory of Christ living in me. We are not the treasure. Jesus is the treasure. And if I want the students that I teach on occasions to learn anything and to know anything, that's what I want them to know. We are not the treasure. We don't draw attention to ourselves. We are just clay pots. Jesus is the treasure. The gospel is the treasure. That's the thing that we draw people's attention to. We set their sights in a Christward direction. You can tell a lot about a preacher by the way that you leave church. Hear about the two gentlemen from the States. Came over to London wanted to hear a couple of good preachers. One of them went to hear Spurgeon, and the other went to hear Bishop Parker. Have you ever heard that story? And they came back after listening to them, gone in two different directions, and they're sitting having a meal uh, Sunday afternoon, having grilled preacher. This time they're not grilling Robin Sidsurf, they're grilling Spurgeon and Parker. The man who had been to hear Parker said, what a great preacher. The man who had been to hear Spurgeon said, what a great Savior. And that is exactly the point that Paul is making in this passage. The treasure is in clay pots. Here's the fourth thing, and with this we'll be through. He, he talks about endless difficulties. He says, 
We're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. Persecuted, not abandoned. Struck down, not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to the death, to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So first of all, hard-pressed but not crushed. The pressures of ministry. The pressure of facing constant criticism. The pressures of false allegations. People saying that you're doing things that you're not even doing. The pressure of being the go-to person for who knows how many churches and carrying all of that on your shoulders. He says we are hard-pressed, but we're not crushed. Why is he not crushed? Because he knows that he is not alone. He knows that it's not his burden alone to face. He knows that Jesus carries the burden with him. He says we are perplexed, but not in despair. Ever reach a point where you wonder what to think next, never mind what to do next? He says we are perplexed, but we're not in despair. He knew in the secret places of his heart that God had it all in hand. Even though he doubted on occasions, in the secret places of his heart, he knew that God had it all in hand, and that was why he was not in despair. He says, we are persecuted but not abandoned. If anybody knew what it was to be persecuted, the Apostle Paul did. Beaten, imprisoned, stoned. Can you imagine what it would be like to be stoned and left for dead? Can you imagine the mangled mess your body would be in? He says, we've been persecuted, but we've never been abandoned. They came to Chrysostom and they said to him, if you don't stop preaching, we will confiscate your treasure. And he said to them, you cannot confiscate my treasure because my treasure is in heaven. Then, says the emperor, we will banish you from your friends. You cannot banish me from my friends because I have a friend who said he will never leave me or forsake me. Paul says, we are struck down, but we're not destroyed. Struck down, that's a bit of a shocker, isn't it? You wouldn't have expected to read that in a New Testament letter. Struck down. The word one of the commentators said could simply refer to feeling depressed. You would never have expected an apostle to feel depressed. To feel a little despondent on occasions. He says we've been struck down but we've never been destroyed because he knows that God loves him and is always at least five steps ahead of him. He has never been destroyed. So why does Paul tell us these things? He tells us these things because he wants us to see that he carries around in his body the death of Christ. He carries around in his body the death of Christ. Why did Jesus die on a cross? Jesus died on a cross because he was abandoned to the will of the Father. Why did the Apostle Paul trundle around the first century world, face all kinds of criticism, and never ever give up? It was because he was abandoned to the will of the Father. It was because he was sharing in the sufferings of Christ. It was because he was entering into the mindset 
and sharing the mindset that took Jesus to the cross. And because he did that, he refused to give up. He was absolutely abandoned, absolutely abandoned to the will of God. And that's why he continued to trundle around the first century world, facing persecution, harassment, and all kinds of difficulties. And he says a very interesting thing here. He says, so that in my body, the life of Christ might be revealed. So that in my body, the life of Christ might be revealed. Because if you think about the Apostle Paul facing all of this stuff, and you look at him, and you begin to think about him, and you say to yourself, why does that little man keep going? Why does that little man not just throw in the towel and go home? Look, here's a church that he has planted, and he had to retreat out of town. Why does he not just go back to Jerusalem and enjoy the good life? The answer is because another life is at work within him. Another life is at work within him. A few years ago, I was speaking at an event, and the other speaker at the morning Bible readings was a man called Patrick McGilligot. And he told me this story that I've never, ever forgotten. He said, I've just come back from Turkey. And he said, it was one of the most stressful times that I've ever had in my life. I was speaking at a missionary retreat. And when I was at the missionary retreat, I saw a number of single ladies and their children. And I asked the missionaries, why is there so many single ladies and children? Where are the fathers? Oh, says the leader of the work of WEC in Turkey. They were murdered. And their wives decided to stay here to carry on the work to these people that they and their husbands felt called to reach. You look at someone like that and you say, why does a person keep doing that? A person continues to do that because there is another life at work within them. And, and as you look at them and watch them and observe them, you are confronted with that reality. Something is driving these people. There is something to these people that is fundamentally different from anyone else that I know. That's why Paul continues, so that the life of Christ might be revealed uh, within him. And what is true of missionaries in Turkey is true of you here in Edinburgh. When I was a minister, I used to look out on a congregation and see all kinds of faces and all kinds of people. I saw people that had lost their partners and spouses. I saw people that had lost their health. I saw people that had lost their children sitting in front of me. I, I saw people who had lost their businesses. I saw people who had lost, lost their jobs. I saw people who had lost their health going through chemotherapy but they were still there and they were still pressing on with Jesus and they still refused to give up. Why? Because another life was at work within them. That's the only answer that you can give. So you may be squeezed, but you won't be squashed. You may be bewildered, but you will not be befuddled. You might be pursued, but you will never ever be abandoned. You might be knocked down, but you won't be knocked out. We have this great treasure. We have this great life within us. And we must never give up 
in the task of making it known to others. Thank you so much for your kind attention tonight.